Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton City Council has taken a step towards licensing rental housing near Mohawk College and McMaster University, but not without some controversy. Also, the interim commissioner of the OPP is calling for a review on the appointment of the new commissioner, Ron Tavener. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Planning committee met yesterday and uh, focused on, uh, well, rental housing and, and, and rental properties in general. Uh, there are a couple of things here about condo conversions that we'll get into in a couple of seconds. But uh, city councils, the staff here and council finally hammered, or trying to hammer something out right now, have taken a step towards licensing rental units near post-secondary educations, more specifically, of course, Mohawk and McMaster, right? Uh, John Paul Denko is the uh, newly minted councillor for Ward 8. Uh, he was there yesterday. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, John Paul, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure. Good morning, Bill. Great to have you. Planning meeting, first one, of course, as a, as a new councillor, and they throw you right into the deep end of the pool. This is a pretty contentious issue. It can be. Um, I think uh, the you know the passion from the delegates was um, duly noted. Uh, it's definitely interesting when you're on the other side of the desk there, but uh you know, it's it's always important to get everyone's point of view and get all the information you can. So I, I understand this can be a contentious issue, but it, it's a very important issue, and especially for Ward 8 and the residents of Ward 8. Well, and, and by the way, we are going to give the other side of this. So we're going to have one of the people who actually uh, spoke to council yesterday from the other side of this issue in just a, a little while after you and I finish our conversation. But uh, and this is not a new issue. I mean, this this goes back about fifteen years or so. Uh, it's and and I know the student housing is one element of this, and that's certainly a focus for for you around Mohawk College. But uh, right through the city, there's been a, a a discussion right now about about well property standards, all sorts of things. I mean, this is a multifaceted decision and a multifaceted problem. That's right, and I, I think it's interesting you bring up how long um, this problem has been going on. I mean, it, it's something that was an issue when I was a student at McMaster. Um, and the bylaw in particular that we're talking about um, has been on the docket since, I believe, 2008. So it's been back and forth for the last 10 years. And it's, you know, I think it's something that the residents that live in those neighborhoods that uh, do have quite a bit of rental housing, which tends to be near the post-secondary education um, institutions, it's something that's a huge concern for residents and also for the tenants that uh, are living in these units. Well, let me ask you. I mean, you just spent a few months knocking on doors before the, the election mm-hmm. this past. What, what, what did they tell you? You know, it was really interesting because I didn't have anybody, and this is, you know, probably surprised a lot of people. I didn't have anybody with any real complaints about the students themselves. The complaints were always about the landlords and the state of the property and the maintenance and the grass and the roof is falling in and the snow's not shoveled. And it's, it's that kind of thing and the character of those neighborhoods that, you know, it's evolving over time. And, you know, when you look at some of these rental properties and, the, the, you know, the neighbor's very passionate about it and they, you know, pull you over and they look at this house, look at it on the outside. Can you imagine what it's like on the inside? And that's exactly what this uh, this bylaw is trying to address: is those conditions that the tenants are living in on the inside. Are, are the kinds that you're just describing, though, John Paul? Are they the exception or the rule? It's a mix. I mean, there's always uh, good landlords and you know absentee landlords, um, and it's uh, again, it, it's not the students. It's it's more the conditions of the properties that people are concerned about. And there are some very well-maintained properties and landlords that care, you know, not going to characterize everybody the same way. 
Um, but it's, it's those problem ones that, you know, they're a real problem. So what you've done now is, is I guess, sent staff away now to come up with a, a byline, and this is going to be a pilot project? That's right. The intent is for a two-year pilot just for Wards 1 and Ward 8. Uh, which encompasses, obviously, uh, you know, the, the two areas where the post-secondary education is. I know the Redeemer is up there, too, but I don't think uh, rental housing is too much of a problem up in the south end of Ancaster. Uh, not so much, obviously, as it would be at Mohawk and McMaster University. So maybe you could just give us a, a, some, some bullet points as to exactly what you'd like to see this bylaw contain. Well, the, the key thing is that the bylaw will give us, um, as, a, as a regulator, as the city, um, the ability to access these properties to do full inspection. So that means they'll be inspected for um, fire code, for building code, that make sure that the plumbing is in order. There'll be an electrical inspection. And really the goal is to make sure that the tenants are living in a safe and clean environment. And, uh, you know, I, I think... Really, what it comes down to is is the safety of the people that are living there. And there's tends to be, especially when you're talking about um, primarily student rentals, although we don't differentiate between a student rental and a rental, um, but particularly when we're talking about students, there's a real power, power imbalance there. And I think my, my colleague, uh, um, Councillor Wilson, brought this up, that a lot of students aren't going to speak out um, they sort of see it as a rite of passage to live in, you know, what is a dump, and they just live with it. And I, I, it's not acceptable to them, and it's not acceptable to the neighbors, and that's what we're really trying to target with this bylaw. We've talked on the broader sense, uh, John Paul, over the last couple of years now about affordable housing, whether it's rental mm-hmm. or buying, whatever the case might be. Uh, and obviously there's there's a shortage, I mean, which is one of the reasons why we've, we've we're having this discussion in the first place. But with vis-a-vis student housing, are they in the same situation? In other words, are students afraid to speak up because they could get booted out and not have anywhere else to go? I think it's a mix. I mean, it, like I said uh, earlier, there, there's a power imbalance there where the students sort of accept that the, commi- the um, conditions that they're in. Um, there was a presentation by, um, I believe her name was uh, Stephanie, from the uh, McMaster Students' Union. And uh, her report was that students, more or less, are not afraid of going to their landlords with issues. So I'm not sure that it's um, being afraid to speak out. It's just that they just tend not to. So uh, let's let's talk about timelines and, and the implementation in this. But I guess the first thing that we probably should get on the table here is the cost, because I know that a number of landlords spoke out about this yesterday and, and were very concerned about the $200 fee. Uh, now, I've seen two reports on this. Maybe you could clarify something for us. Uh, one report suggested this is a $200 flat fee for each uh, each building. The other told me that it was a 200 fee per unit. Uh, which which one are you looking for here? Well, we're sort of talking about the same thing. So it's, it's a $200 fee per rental unit, but in a single-family home that's been converted to a rental, um, we're defining the unit as a dwelling unit, so that's the whole house. So it's for everybody that lives there. So okay, because there's some discrepancy I heard yesterday from uh, actually mm. somebody who was there and mis- maybe misunderstood, uh, suggested that if, for instance, it was a four bedroom house, it'd be two hundred times four. But that's not what you're doing then. No, if it was a four bedroom house, it'd be fifty dollars, you know, per person that lives there. Okay, just two hundred dollars for that address then. And that's what that's basically what you're talking about. Correct. And if it was a duplex, it'd be two hundred dollars for each unit exactly all right and 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 now is that supposed to be cost recovery i mean obviously if there's going to be inspections etc there's going to be a cost to that uh is that what the 200 hundred dollar fee is for yes and that's something that we need to as counselors to make sure 
confirm with staff, and it's a, one of the issues that um, some of the delegates brought up that they're concerned about the long-term cost of implementing what is another level of bureaucracy. So as a council, we need to make sure that the fee is 100% cost recovery. All right. Now, what about the impact on students? Or let me just put it this way, tenants, because as you say, uh, the council doesn't really differentiate between somebody who's a student and a non-student. But if, if right. there's a $200 fee uh, tacked onto a property, and, and I'm a landlord, you know, my first inclination is going to be, I'm just going to pass that cost on to the people that are living there. And so, in other words, the rent's going to go up. The rent, I mean, that is a, certainly a possibility. Uh, but if you're talking about, um, say, a home with eight people living in it, a $200 annual fee, that's $25 per person. That's only a couple bucks a month. So I really don't see that the fee itself having an impact on the rents. Um, what I'm more concerned about, and we heard this from the delegates who were at the committee yesterday, is all the ancillary costs that would go with it in the capital costs of repairs and scheduling inspections and everything that goes around with bringing your property up to standard, which, I mean, I, I have some real concerns with that because that can be a significant cost. And when you get into 100% building code requirement, there's times when, you know, some of the provisions are a little overreaching. It might not apply to existing housing. But once you open that Pandora's box and those regulations are in place, there's not much you can do about it, isn't it? The landlord's going to get stuck with those costs. That's right. And, and that's, again, that's something that we heard from the, uh, from the delegates, from the, the landlords and the real estate representatives. And that's something that I think as a council, we really need to make sure that the bylaw isn't too overreaching that, you know, that prices landlords out of the market just for, you know, compliance with things that in the long run probably aren't a big deal. It's, it's, we want to focus in on the safety issues, the fire, the electrical, plumbing, that kind of thing. Is this going to be done, uh, the inspections, I mean, Jay, are, are they going to be done on a, on, a, on a complaint basis, or is there going to be a rotation, like a schedule that, uh, okay, we're doing this neighborhood today? I believe we'll get the information when the bylaw comes back, but my understanding is the intention is to have an annual licensing, and, which will mean you'll have an annual inspection, similar to how restaurants and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Uh, people that sell food and such, uh, retail work. All right, and well, let's use that as an example. Go down that road for a second. That's an interesting analogy. Uh, Those who are in non-compliance, I have a big sign posted on the front window. I'm not suggesting necessarily do that, but what do you do with those that are not in compliance right now? Uh, Obviously, there are notices given, but I mean, as you mentioned, I think 90% of the people that do this, uh, vis-a-vis landlords, of course, are are reputable people to try to do the best Mm -hmm. they possibly can, but there's some bad apples. They're always going to be. How does the city plan to deal with them? But I think that's part of what the uh, the bylaw, the the draft bylaw that's coming forward is going to look at is is the um, enforcement aspect of this. If there's going to be fees involved that get charged to the tax roll, for example, um, if you are banned from or if you don't aren't licensed, is there a waiting period where you have to reapply, or you know how's the regulatory part of it going to work? Is is part of what's going to come forward with the draft bylaw? Uh, and how do you get people to actually register for a situation like this? I mean, you know, you, you, you go to door-to-door. I mean, there's, there's no sign there that says rental housing here. Or some of them do, I suppose. But, I mean, uh, you're, you're not going to catch everybody with this net, are you? No, and that's, again, that's one of the challenges that other municipalities faced when they have implemented um, a program such as this. I know one of the examples that the landlords have brought up is London, where they're, I think they, they state they only have around 25% compliance. 
So that's an issue, but I think in the long run, it's the right thing to do. And as it becomes the norm, um, landlords, there's an advantage to the landlord to have a legitimate license and be recognized, especially when it starts to go to the the educational institution to advertise. These are our off-campus housing. These are licensed. And when we talk to other jurisdictions like London, uh, Waterloo, Kingston, Oshawa, Thorold, the students and the students' parents are specifically looking for licensed properties because they know that that property has been inspected, it's safe, and it's a good place for their, you know, for their kids to live. So, but it's, this is akin to, the, for instance, I mean, there's a bylaw right now in the city that says everybody that owns a dog has to get a, its license. And <laughs> the last time I talked to bylaw, they figured, you know, that's probably about 10 or 12% of the dog owners that actually go ahead and do that. I mean, how can you mm-hmm. tell one way or another? And it's going to be somewhat problematic. And I would think the same thing would apply here. Yeah, and it will be a challenge, no question. Um, but I see it as it, it's a tool that the city can use to have some leverage over those properties to make sure that they're kept up to, to standards. And if you are living in a neighborhood and you have a concern about you know, rental property that might be on your street or something like that, now you have a real tool that you can go to the city, you can find out if they're licensed or not, and there are some, presumably will be, some enforcement measures that can be taken. What about the population within the the house itself, the unit itself, John Paul? Because this has been a very contentious issue, especially uh, around the, the, as you say, around Mohawk and McMaster, the student housing areas. Uh, I mean, there have been some conversions that have been done. Oftentimes it's by absentee landlords. You're absolutely right. I've seen some of these. That looks like it's a a three-bedroom house, and there's about nine or ten bedrooms in there. I mean, they've just thrown walls up. Uh, And I know that there's been some health and safety concerns about that. Is there anything about ratios or, or number of people per house, residents per house? We can't, I believe we can't specify number of people per house because a home is defined as a dwelling unit. So, for example, my wife's family are from Newfoundland. Um, her mother-in-law is from one of 12 kids. So we can't specify how many people can live there, but what we can do is make sure that that home meets building code requirements, which have standards for room sizes, for habitable space, and that kind of thing. So. It, there is a way to kind of limit the number of people that live in a house without having a specific, you know, you can't only have eight people in a house. So, yeah, that's how you control it then. In other words, you can, you can have your eight bedrooms as long as they're wired properly, as long as the plumbing's done. In other words, it's, it's, if it's up to code, you're okay with that. Exactly, that they have doors, that it's built well, it's wired, there's access to bathrooms, to shared space, kitchen, that kind of thing. John Paul, thanks so much for this. Uh, it's uh, as I say, it's hardly over yet. I know there's going to be some more debate and discussion about this once this bylaw comes back to City Council, and uh, we look forward to that discussion. But thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thank Take you. Take care, John Paul Danko, with the uh, newly admitted uh, councillor for Ward Eight, who's of course on the planning committee. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So you heard from the uh, city council position on this, John Paul Danko from uh, Ward Eight, explaining why council decided to move ahead and ask staff to uh, prepare a draft bylaw, which is uh, going to be a pilot project, uh, specifically for wards 1 and 8, and that's obviously targeting uh, student housing around McMaster and Mohawk College. Uh, but some are concerned about this is this is just thin edge of the wedge. I mean, the, take this step towards licensing rental housing units. That's basically what they want to do here, and of course there will be a fee. And uh, there's going to be some other costs involved in this, and a number of people spoke at the committee meeting yesterday, uh, some, yes, the McMaster Students' Union, uh, a number of tenants' organizations complained about this, but the landlords have a perspective on this as well. 
And uh, to talk to us about that and explain that idea and that side of it, uh, we're pleased to welcome uh, Peter Dykowski, conscientious landlord and uh, concerned citizen, self-professed concerned citizen and landlord. Uh, Pete, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hey, thanks, Bill. I appreciate you having me on. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you heard yesterday. And I know you're one of the people that made a presentation to the committee yesterday. Uh, first of all, maybe uh, just to, to set the standard here and set the, the, the parameters, what's, what's your read on what council decided with this draft bylaw? Well, it's concerning because it's, it, like you said, it's a, it, it's a thin edge of a wedge, which will eventually lead to citywide uh, rental housing licensing. And the concern shared by not just landlords, there are you know, certain subsets of tenant groups who realize this is a cost that's going to get passed along to tenants, it's going to raise rents, and it will reduce supply. Well, and let's let's talk a little bit about the implications of this. And we, we talked about the $200 fee, and as the Councillor Danko said, he says, come on, it's, it's a $200 fee and an annual fee. Uh, what's the big deal? Well, that's I don't know so much, Pete, if it's really the $200. It's what, that's what the inspection is going to say. Okay, uh, Mr. Landlord, here's a list of things that you have to get done, and you've got 30 days to do it. Well, it's not just the $200 fee, and it's not the potential downside of a failed inspection. It's the inspection processes and compliance itself. There's a lot more to it than just a $200 fee. The landlords will be on the hook for it, and all of the larger landlords will apply to the LTB to pass along the cost as above guideline rent increases to the tenants. So the majority of tenants will end up bearing this cost. It's the $200 fee, but then the cost of uh, electrical uh, inspections and certifications and a number of other inspections and certifications the city will require. So even if you have a perfectly safe unit, a landlord is going to have to comply with all of these additional inspections. So Regardless of whether there's any deficiencies found, there's still a significant cost. And they make it sound like, oh, this is simply $200 on a unit that may earn 6000 or 8000 or 10000 or 20000 a year. The reality is landlords have, uh, have costs. Almost every single landlord in the city is carrying a mortgage of some sort. And the actual net proceeds from a rental unit are far, far, far lower fraction of the actual gross rent. So this $200 plus several hundred dollars more and then potentially thousands in compliance costs are coming off of after expenses cash flows that may not be much more than $1,000 per unit in some cases. Now, one of the elements to this and one of the side effects of this is going to be, I guess, that you know, when there's increased costs like this, uh, one of two things has to happen. You as a landlord, you either pass that cost on to your tenants, but if you have to absorb it and eat it, I, I got to think, Pete, that there's going to be some people in your position that are going to say, you know what, I'm getting out of the game. This is not making me any money. It's costing me money. Well, a lot of rental housing provi- providers are very, very small businesses. You know, consider a family with a basement suite or a senior citizen with grown children who rents out one of the bedrooms to a lodger. That's not an insignificant number of units. And those are people who would be least well inclined towards navigating the red tape and paperwork required. And they'd possibly have the you know least amount of free cash flow after expenses. A lot of those people might decide it's not worth it anymore. And we, you know, we'll see people leaving the market. And then, like I said, with larger landlords, you will see the cost passed along to the tenant via legal uh, landlord-tenant board approved above guideline rent increases. 
And you'll probably also see a chilling effect on new rental housing construction, and that's been a big conversation in our city. How do we encourage and spur the construction of new rental units? We're seeing a lot of uh, condo units being built, but we're seeing not nearly enough new purpose-built rental housings, and this is going to put even more of a chill on it. We're seeing the effects of that already with a very tight market that's not good to be a renter in. Well, and we saw that yesterday. I don't know if that happened before or after you guys uh, had your presentations before the committee, but uh, the committee also decided that they are going to do some uh, conversions, uh, rental units into uh, into condo units, uh, which had a lot of people scratching their heads after this discussion about uh, you know affordable housing and whether or not we have enough rental units. They've just said, yeah, you can convert some of those over. Now, I know that the, the people that own those buildings said they're not going to do it right now, but they've got the permission to. But you've got to figure there's got to be some consistency in city policy here. Well, it, it doesn't make sense. I, th- I think what we're seeing here is a convergence of some real concerns. There, you know, there are some real concerns raised, and they're seeing this as a potential tool for solving a number of them, which is how you get a coalition together to back uh, the kind of measure like this uh, rental uh, licensing bylaw. There are legitimate concerns in Wards 1 and 8 about rental house conversions. I don't believe that this bylaw will be able to effectively answer those. There's a number of of concerns raised by council and raised by people supporting this licensing, which are governed by the Residential Tenancies Act, which is a provincial legislation that supersedes any bylaw that we can write. And this won't solve a number of the highlighted issues. We're using... Uh, the, the tools that we have available as a city bylaw to try to correct things which I don't believe that it will be able to. So we'll be left with the same problems. We already have enforcement mechanisms in place. We need to make them function properly before we layer on more regulations, more bureaucracy, and a new tax, which might also, is more than likely, not going to be implemented effectively. So we'll have a sandwich of poorly implemented regulatory steps, and that's not healthy for a market. That's not going to help us have more units, and it's not going to help our landlords thrive, and those are the people who are providing the residential ho- the rental housing that our tenants rely on. You, you raise an interesting point that I'm sure maybe a lot of people that are listening to this discussion or this debate yesterday, you and Pete, I may not be aware of. As, as a landlord, you already, uh, you, there is overriding legislation, provincial legislation, uh, guidelines, et cetera, and standards that are set that's already in place and has been for some time. We're governed by the Ontario Building Code, the Residential Tenancies Act, human rights legislation. Uh, we already have our zoning bylaw and property standards bylaw in the city, just to name a couple. You know, I recommend, so I was one of the delegates at this meeting, and I recommended to the committee that they recommend to council that our council petition the Ministry of the Attorney General of Ontario to appoint three new landlord tenant board adjudicators and two new sheriffs for our region. And what that would do is allow our landlord and tenant board to actually work. Right now, we have an enforcement mechanism that really can't enforce anything. It takes months for tenants to have a case heard effectively against a deficient landlord and for landlords to have cases effectively heard against tenants who may be causing issues uh, that are concerning the residents in wards one and eight. 
What's interesting well, we, about this, because I, I listen way back when I was on city council, we had the same problem. You can pass bylaws, you know, from here till next Tuesday if you want, but if you don't have the the staff to to be able to enforce them or do the inspections, it, it's really useless. There's nothing going on. And I know, as you've articulated, because I've heard this from other landlords as well, you're in the same situation with the provincialist. Situ- there are laws already and there are standards, but there's nobody there doing the inspection, nobody doing the enforcement. And and as you say, the hearings. I mean, you, by the time you finally get around to your hearing, you forget what you were there for. Well, we're gonna. So here's an example. I had a tenant, and you know we disagreed with him, and we defended ourselves effectively. But I had a tenant bring a complaint um, in one of my student residences to the landlord tenant board this summer. It took nearly two months, and by that point, we'd already come to a, an, a, an agreement, and we had rented the unit out to somebody else. And if, in you know, I consider our operation to be extremely professional, and you know one of the one of the best out there. There are a minority of landlords who, you know, maybe they're out of town, they're not quite so conscientious, or they uh, have extremely tight margins and they can't afford to do certain things. Those are the ones that, you know, we'd like to have uh, a mechanism for tenants to bring them to task. But we have a landlord-tenant board, which is so slow, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Let's make that work before we layer on new and less effective measures. All we're going to end up out of this is a tax. And imagine this, to comb the city to find out where these rental units are, we only know where a certain percentage of them are. Some of them are very obvious, large rental buildings. But to find every house that's been converted into a rental unit, to find every single rental suite in the city, to make sure every single owner complies, to track down every corporate owner, to ensure that they're all paying their tax. Well, that's going to take a tremendous amount of staff and labor, let alone the necessary inspections, and then certifying and checking over paperwork from other inspections, showing that these things are actually... We're talking about a Herculean effort that's going to cost a lot more to implement than the $200 per unit tax, as bad as that is. So well, every taxpayer in the city will end up being on the hook for this. You know, there's a perception, I think, that we should address here, Pete. I think a lot of people have this idea that landlords are these, uh, you know, landowners, you know, huge tracts of land or they own multiple apartment buildings. And there are some people, obviously, that are doing that. But an awful lot of people I know that are in situations like this uh, maybe bought a second house. And it's, it's really, it's it's their retirement income. In other words, they don't have a pension. So they're going to buy this house. They're going to generate revenue to keep you know paying the taxes and, and mortgage because most of them have mortgages. And then obviously sell it upon retirement. Uh, it's not as if they're buying 8, 10, 12 houses and, and doing this illegal stuff. And I, I got to figure that a lot of those people are not going to come forward and say, yeah, I'm going to register. If they're going to ask them to do this on an honor basis, a lot of them are just going to say, no, that's going to screw up my, every, all my plans. And then you're going to spend a fortune trying to police it. And the sad thing is, many people did like you said. They invested in Hamilton. They looked at the landscape. They looked at the parameters that they would be working within, and they chose to invest in Hamilton. Now we're changing the rules on these people. Does that make Hamilton an attractive uh, place to come and invest? Does that help us compete regionally with other centers? I don't think so. I mean, having uncertainty in our business landscape is a tremendous deterrent to, to investment in our city and in our future. And for these people who've already committed, who've already invested, well, now we're pulling out the rug from under their feet. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to feel a lot of pain from this. And, you know, it's going to be renters. It's going to be property owners. It's going to be felt throughout the city. 
Well, the concern is, is twofold, and, and, and this is not the first time we've heard this, because this isn't the first time that city has mused about the idea of, of putting a fee onto this and, and having licensing for, for landlords. Uh, and one is obviously, as you say, it's going to get passed on to the tenants. The other is people are going to get out of the game altogether, and all of a sudden we're going to have this shortage once again. Uh, and, and I'm not so sure if, if you know they've actually thought this through to these consequences. I mean, you know, every, every action is a reaction. And I'm not so sure that these positive reactions that they're talking about are, are going to outweigh the negative reactions that, that are probably going to become an eventuality. Well, if I was a selfish person, I'd actually welcome this. I have a very well-run company. We can handle, you know, whatever amount of paperwork and compliance they want to throw it at. So it'll cost money. It will have to pass that along, and it will tighten up the market. But that—that's the most cynical approach I could possibly take. I care about my tenants. I was—I I cater to a lot of students, and students are generally a low-income group. They're living away from home, away from support networks. They are in a situation where they can't take many hours of work. They're very income insecure. And this is a subset that have been targeted by this. Now, there are some bad students having party houses and all of this, but this isn't going to address that. There are already tools to address that that we, that we should implement. This is going to hurt and pass on a lot of costs and reduce a lot of housing for a lot of students. And our institutions aren't in a position to build more on-campus housing. If they were, they would. They're trying to. They've added some, but they can't keep up with their pace of enrollment. We need... Uh, we need private housing providers. We have great private housing providers. Let's support them. Let's not vilify and tax them. It doesn't make sense. All right. Try to help City Council out here, Pete, if you could, because obviously they're hearing concerns and complaints uh, about it's basically property standards. I think that's what it comes down to. I know they're talking about electrical inspections, et cetera, but uh, more often than not, the complaints are about what's going on outside or not going on outside the house. How do you root out the bad apples? Because there are some, as you mentioned, absentee landlords that really don't give a damn whether the grass gets cut or the snow gets shoveled or what the property looks like in the front. Uh, and, and that gives you all a, a bad name. I mean, I know there are some people that love to paint everybody with the same brush, and that's happening here too. But if it's just a minority of, of bad people, how do you get them out of there? Well, if we had, and if, now I know this is a um, provincial jurisdiction, but our city has a lot of influence uh, in this. If we had a landlord-tenant board that worked effectively and swiftly, it would be much easier and much more welcoming for tenants to seek remedies there to what we could call bad landlords or absentee landlords. As it is for a student to try to navigate a two-month-long process of hearings to document, uh, you know, just the task of documenting the evidence is is a a bit of a burden, but you have to expect it if you're going to be bringing a charge against somebody. But the length of the process, the way it can be drawn out, and the time it takes to get a hearing is obscene. If we had timely hearings at the landlord and tenant board, and it would only take adding a few more adjudicators to clear out the backlog, then we could have a better mechanism for tenants to hold their landlords to task. Likewise, more adjudicators uh, and maybe another sheriff or two would help landlords bring uh, tenants who are uh, damaging uh, property standards uh, into compliance. Right now, we have a system that doesn't work, so people cheat. So there's one mechanism, and because all of the fees for this are paid by landlords, it's nominally 
self-funding. It shouldn't take too much of a leap of imagination to think that we could get these positions added. And then we have, and we've already seen some benefit of this, uh, proactive bylaw enforcement. So bylaw task force that look at substandard properties and proactively engage them rather than waiting for uh, neighbors to bring complaints. By combining the tools we've already got, we can most certainly see superior outcomes to simply slathering on another layer of regulation that's not going to be properly implemented. Well, and, and you're right. I mean, the province has got to step up their game here, too, because, I mean, some of the prop, the regulations they put in place here are just ludicrous. Uh, that if there's a property standards issue, and I know you know this as a landlord, uh, not that you would do this, but I've experienced this from, from some of the bad apples that we've just talked about, is they've got 30 days to comply if they're found in noncompliance because of property standards. And on day 29, they file an appeal, which gives them another 60 days. So on and on and on it goes. And, and, and the city really is, is, is frustrated by this because they can't do a damn thing about it. Yeah, if we, ha- if we have a system that allows for cheating, some people will cheat, whether it's landlords or tenants. Let's look at our existing mechanisms and find ways to make them work better. Like, what is the logic if we have multiple existing mechanisms for remedy that aren't effectively implemented to bring in one more uh, new regulatory regime? I-, I don't understand it. You know, a lot of people will trot out the the old line that um, government is uh, great at you know being inefficient and wasting money and i don't necessarily buy that all the time because we need government we, everyone's made reasonable decisions that as a society we, we must have um you know we, we must have this institution and we must cooperate but ideas like this are the worst example and uh, and give truth to that line sometimes well, the question, I guess, uh, when this bylaw is drafted and it comes back before council, the, the question everybody should be asking is, is this going to be effective? Is it going to solve the problem at all? And I'm, right now the answer is they don't know. Uh, and I guess that's where we're going to have to leave it for now. Uh, Pete, thanks so much for the time today. Obviously, this is a debate that's not over yet. Uh, lots more to come, and I'm sure we'll stay in touch. But thanks for the time today. Hey, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Take care, Pete. Pete Dyakowski, of course, uh, landlord here in the city. And uh, one of the people that made uh, a presentation to the uh, planning committee yesterday about this proposal now to uh, license uh, landlords and obviously fees involved, et cetera, et cetera. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Boy, we knew this was going to happen. More controversy, of course, about the uh, appointment of a new uh, OPP commissioner. Uh, Interim OPP commissioner Brad Blair is now calling on the Ontario Ombudsman to review the appointment of Ron Tavener. He was, by the way, a longtime friend of uh, Premier Doug Ford. Uh, and he was appointed as the OPP commissioner over potential political interference. That's uh, what the uh, interim chief is uh, alleging in this situation. In a letter to the ombudsman, Blair says, "Are you, uh, as, as you are undoubtedly aware, there exists in the Legislative Assembly and now in the Ontario public consciousness growing concerns about the hiring process of the new OPP commissioner. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Alan Carter. Alan, of course, is the co-anchor of Global News at 5.30 and 6 and the host of Focus Ontario, which is seen every Saturday and Sunday on uh, Global. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Alan. Great to have you with us today. What happened to Alan? We just lost him. Oh, okay. The magic of, uh, of radio. We'll get the, uh, we just lost the line here. We'll pick this up in just a couple of seconds. But we, when we announced this uh, last week, uh, I, I predicted at the time, and it t- I don't think it took a whole lot for you to figure this out, that there was going to be some controversy about this simply because of the process. 
And and I think that's what everybody is concerned about right now is how this was done. Uh, it, it, there's there's obviously there's the credibility of the uh, the candidates involved in this, but uh, it, uh, I think what uh, the OPP commissioner, the interim OPP commissioner, is talking about now is is actually about uh, the procedures that were followed, or maybe more specifically not followed. I think we have Alan back now. Do we? Are you there, Alan? I am indeed. Ah, good. Okay, thanks for hanging in there today. Uh, you know, when they announced this appointment of Kavanaugh the, or the other day, I mean, I think everybody knew that it was inevitable that somebody was going to raise a stink about this. And uh, I, I, the fact that it's coming from the interim commissioner is a little unusual, but uh, let's let's talk about this. Uh, he was actually one of the candidates as well. Uh, th- this really comes down to process, doesn't it? Well, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to look at it. I guess, you know, from a high level, are we dealing here with sour grapes or are we dealing here with um, something that is far far more nefarious sounding, which is political intervention in the selection of a top police official, which I think raises a lot of alarms for a lot of people. I mean, I think that goes right, cuts right across any political strife to wonder, well, now that sounds a little anti-democratic. So I think you have to look at it and parse through it in this nine-page letter that you referred to. Uh, Mr. Blair lays out what he believes is evidence to suggest there would be political interference and therefore that needs to be investigated further and that the uh, appointment of uh, Mr. Tavner has to be put on hold. Well, there's some interesting uh, allegations in, in Blair's letter here. As you mentioned, it's nine pages long. Uh, he also states the decision to appoint Tavener appears to have been made prior to the cabinet meeting where this was to be announced. Uh, and he goes through uh, the, some uh, protocol here about exactly what he had to go, dates, et cetera, et cetera, that he thought he was going to be informed about. Uh, he was told that a, a name was already before the secretary of cabinet and the name was being socialized. He says, I understood this to mean that the candidate's name had already been selected. Uh, so he feels as if the, the fix was in, I guess. That's really what he's, he's trying to uh, assert here, isn't he? Well, what he lays out is he lays out the process in a sort of a timeline. He points out that the initial, uh, and of course this has been previously reported, that the initial um, requirements for the job were altered. Uh, he he then lays out the number of people that uh, were qualified to apply and whether or not the stated reason for changing the uh, the requirements that it opened it up to a wider field for you know more candidates that that was not a credible reason for doing it. Now, Mr. Blair, he qualified under the first set and the second set, so he was qualified under the more stringent rules. He also points out in his letter that, and I I'll see if I can find it here. I, I have it in front of me. Uh, about this, the, about generally within the staff of the uh, OPP, he was considered to be the front runner for this job. And you'd think that to be the case. He's he was the interim guy, uh, so he's got some experience in that position. And 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 I know that that's how people are going to characterize this is that while well, this is just sour grapes. But as Global News uh, discovered, I heard yesterday on of course on Global News, uh, there's another investigation uh, the ombudsman has, has undertaken already from uh, two MPPs that have some concerns about process here. Yeah, that is true, and you know that's that's another thing that is now in front of the ombudsman and Mr. Dubé, um, who is very much unlike his predecessor Andrew Andrew Moran. Um, he is a uh, extremely careful and soft-spoken man, uh, and so 
There's a couple of questions we have here now uh, about what Mr. Dubé is going to do in his office. He's basically said our comment is no comment. Is that he is, the question is, does he have jurisdiction here? That's going to be the first thing to go forward. And if he has jurisdiction, does he have any power? And of course, he has no power. There's no binding recommendation that he can make on the government. So effectively, if this is the decision that the government has made, this is the decision and the ombudsman will not be able to stop it. So this may just be to, to satisfy, I guess, everybody's curiosity. Or, uh, but by the same token, though, I mean, the day this was announced, though, Alan, I mean, there were some concerns raised about this very idea about, you know, expanding the, the scope and, and actually lowering the bar is how some people characterize this. And and it was only 48 hours after they announced that they were going to have a competition for the job. Uh, and, and I guess the question a lot of people were asking, and I certainly was, was how could you possibly ascertain that there aren't enough quality candidates after only two days. I mean, you know, it's, it's almost, it validates what a lot of people are saying is that this was predetermined. Yeah, well, again, and, and this is what uh, Mr. Blair tries to lay out, is a, a series of allegations that uh, indicate that there, there is, if not evidence of political interference, enough questions. And what he, what he pins his whole letter on is that this has of impact on the rank and file and the actual morale of the police, and that he's been contacted by many of them who are upset that process has not been followed here, and that there are these questions that will hang over uh, Mr. Tavner when he becomes commissioner, if he becomes commissioner on Monday, and will just, it, it, it's a, you know, it's a difficult job at the best of times, but to be appointed under such a cloud um, is going to have a distinct impact on the police force and its morale going forward. Well, and that has to be a consideration, obviously. I mean, if you're a frontline officer and you think that, hey, the premier is actually calling the shots with the OPP, I, I can understand people being concerned about that. And, and in the letter, Alan, as you know, because I know you've read all nine pages of this thing, uh, he, he makes some other, Blair makes some other accusations here. The one that uh, jumped out at me that I've already got some response from on social media after we talked about it, uh, he alleges that uh, Premier Ford's chief of staff, Dean French, there's that guy in the news again. Here we go, yeah, Dino. Requested that the OPP purchase a large camper-style vehicle, have it customized, and have the costs kept off the books. Because, I mean, Alan, who doesn't love RVing, right? <laughs> go RVing. Yeah. I mean, incredible. And this, here, here is the thing. You know, so many political stories are esoteric. They're difficult to, there's no visualization for it. You're talking about balance sheets and numbers and all the rest. Here now is an image that is going to stick to the Ford government. I mean, you've seen it on social media in the last, oh, yeah. just since this, since this story broke, right? In the yeah. last 12 to 14 hours, it is everywhere. And so this now becomes, so now, how long before there are posters with camper vans? Like this, this is an incredible uh, visual and long lasting damage to the Ford government that it's going to be very difficult to get out from underneath. Yeah. The camper van. Yeah, and the other element here, too, is, uh, and again, another one of the accusations uh, that uh, that the Premier had asked for a specific security detail. There are security people, of course, and he followed the Premier anywhere they go. Uh, but he wanted to staff with specific officers uh, that he would be comfortable with. In other words, a hand-picked detail that are going to work s- exclusively, I guess, with the Premier, which is, 
well, let me put it this way. It's, it's unconventional that a premier would ask for that. That's what he says. Um, and, and I'm just looking at it now. Uh, and, and here he says that um, the premier Ford expressed displeasure that his request, the request you just talked about, was not being acted upon by the OPP. And I'm quoting here from the uh, letter. Premier Ford requested that he have a face-to-face meeting with former Commissioner Vince Hawks and stated if former Commissioner Hawks would not address the issue, perhaps a new commissioner would. Ultimately, the Premier's request was approved and implemented by the OPP. So you you see the narrative that he's establishing here is that here is an example of Ford saying, okay, if you're not going to do it the way I want to do it, I'll find somebody who will. Now, that's, that, that in itself is, is, is a concern, obviously, because it, it, it plays to the narrative right now that you've got a premier that basically says, I call the shots, I tell people what they're going to do. I don't care if you're an OPP commissioner, a hydro commissioner, whoever it is, this is my ball game. Yes. Now, there are other ways to look at the camper van, and, and this is, you know, the other story that kind of is woven through this, because we mentioned Dean French back in the news again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to remind everybody, Dean French, chief of staff, longtime friend of uh, the Ford family, not terribly experienced in terms of government and has been painted as somebody that's a bit of a bull in a china shop in terms of just being the the premier's I want to get this done guy, the guy who goes out and implements what he believes the premier wants and does it in an unconventional and often disruptive way. So there's that narrative in here as well because Dean French is shown to be the person who who you know says of the camper van this is what we want and by the way here's the person we want to do it and here's the specs for it it's sole source please pay for it yeah well that that hide the money is is something that I guess raises eyebrows I, I got to ask you we've we've talked about how this may or may not impact the premier obviously and and his chief of staff. Uh, how is how is this going to roll off Tavener? I mean, in, in, I think you're absolutely right. Inevitably, he's still going to become the commissioner. Unless I, I can't see that there's anything that they're actually going to sort of say, "Hey, stop! We can't do this." But what does it do to his credibility? I mean, he's always going to be known as the guy that got in there because Ford had to pull some strings. Yeah, I think that you know the Ford government, and we have yet to hear from Ford today or hear from the government. So the story is still developing. So there's a bunch of different ways they could they could go at this. I think. If I was advising the government, what I would say is we will pause on this and we will allow, if not the ombudsman to investigate, we will at least do a line by line uh, refuting of the allegations made in this letter to a point where they could confidently say that they have dispelled any evidence or any suggestion that there was political interference because otherwise how possibly can you be the leader of the police force under such a circumstance i mean you can but that is a cloud that will you know follow mr tavner through his entire tenure if he becomes commissioner and it's going to be a tag on just about every story. I mean, if there's any any malfeasance, anything goes on with the OPP, it's going to be OPP Commissioner uh, Tavener who was appointed under dubious circumstances, etc. That's that stays with you. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you know, and and not only that, could you do you think that you could have named Vince Hawks? Do you, how many people in the audience could name the OPP commissioner prior to all of this? You know what? If you stop anybody right now down on Young Street in Toronto or down King Street here in Hamilton, uh, they uh, Fantino, wasn't it? That's about the last one because Julian Fantino obviously was a larger-than-life individual uh, as, as a commissioner. And I, the rest of them, you're right. I mean, you know, Lewis was there. There's a couple of other ones. But that's that's inside baseball stuff. Most people just don't know because there's no profile for the OPP commissioner usually. No, and in the major cities, of course, you have, you know, civic police chiefs and and. So and they're known, but generally that job is pretty quiet. <laughs> um, well, not now. What's going to happen? You mentioned this is a, a story that's got some legs, and there's there's still some other uh, information that has to be forthcoming here. But I mean, I'm looking at the calendar here too, Alan, and we all know the political reality. First of all, the House is is not sitting now and won't until mid February. In another two or three days, everybody's going to get wrapped up in the holiday season. Uh, is there a, a, an opportunity here for the government to just rag the puck and hope this story goes away over the holiday season? Not a chance. I mean, Andrea Horvath has a press conference coming up in the next hour, 11.30, I believe. We'll be watching that. Of course, we have to watch to see what happens from the government. Um, you know what? If I, if I work for the NDP um, in their press office or for the Liberals, I, I have camper vans drive through, you know, the, like when the house comes back, I, I have all of, you know what, that's a great idea for the liberals. Man, I should make more money doing this. You know, the liberals have been accused of being the uh, minivan party with only seven members. They show up in a camper van. There it goes. Back. There it goes. Oh. Uh, it's it's going to happen. Well, we'll be watching at 5.30 tonight on Global News to see uh, the, the latest developments on this. Alan, as always, thanks so much for this. Great to be on. Thanks so much, Phil. Take care. Alan Carter, of course, the uh, co-host of uh, Global News at 530 and 6, and the uh, host of Focus Ontario, which is seen on Saturdays and Sundays on Global. you got to figure this story is going to be part of that Focus Ontario this week as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.